Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pages of HR. I'm your host, Bianca Heron, lead editor at HR Daily Advisor. This podcast provides insightful conversations about HR-related books with the writers who create them. By the end of these conversations, we hope that you'll have actionable insights for your business, best practices to tap, and new information to ponder. While most of us would never dream of ostracizing our coworkers, especially those who have been historically excluded in the workplace because of their perceived otherness, many people routinely feel left out of the workplace culture. And according to my guest today, it's because truly good people who wholeheartedly support diversity, equity, and inclusion, they don't go far enough to show that they care. He notes that real inclusion is rooted in what's in our hearts, but it must live in our daily actions. That good intentions are not enough, And while leaders can set the tone for everyone to follow, caring peer-to-peer interactions make the biggest positive impact. I'm excited to have DEI strategist Omri B. Johnson with me today. For more than 20 years, he has helped organizations and their people create extraordinary business outcomes. He's a social capitalist, epidemiologist, entrepreneur, and of course, an inclusion strategist. Also, as CEO and founder of Inclusion Wins, Omri and a virtual collective of partners converge organizational purpose to create global impact with the lens of inclusion. Today, we're discussing his new book, Reconstructing Inclusion, Making DEI Accessible, Actionable, and Sustainable. Reconstructing Inclusion offers a guide to better understanding the historical context of inclusion, a rethinking of the efforts organizations are now undertaking, and an actionable, robust approach to carrying this work into the future. So let's dive into it. Let's turn the page. Omri, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me, Bianca. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. So please, we're just going to delve into it. As I said, tell me what inspired you to write this timely book? Well, you know, it's the book really started probably in my head in 20. 13, 14. I was doing work with a global pharmaceutical company. I was the head of cultural intelligence and inclusion. And I I was working to build frameworks that made this work accessible to people that oftentimes didn't think it was for them. Now, obviously, doing that work and getting a chance to try out some of these ideas gave me some inspiration. But really what pushed it through and made me really excited about what the possibilities were to create a book like this was that what we saw during COVID actually shifted this conversation in a way, in some ways that I don't think were as helpful as they could be. And in other ways, it it opened up this whole DEI thing in a way that we would have never imagined. So, so the inspiration really started years ago. The actual writing started in the, the dining room table of my in-laws in Spain. So I was sitting out looking at the ocean and started writing. So I had done the research before that, but it really, I really started writing it then. And then, you know, a year later, we, had a, we were in the middle of a pandemic. And so a little less than a year later. And, the, you know, that kind of took me into really reforming what the book was going to be and brought it into what it is today. So some of the original ideas are there and the pandemic, obviously, I think for all of us made us 
really rethink what this work could be like and, and how we could do it in a more robust way. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. And I've got to ask your expert opinion of, you know, of course, where we are today uh, with the state of DEI and we're seeing a number of companies, you know, they tacked on DEI, uh, be uh, hiring DEI executives and, you know, making those positions and all of these initiatives. But now, unfortunately, companies are rolling those back. Do you have any commentary there or any insight in your advice? Try not to sound pessimistic or, you know, being an, a, a, a told you so type person. But it was, it was inevitable, Bianca, because the way that it came out was a reaction to an event. You know, obviously the murder of George Floyd brought us all into centering humanity. It was kind of like I've heard people talk about it even before John Lewis died. He says that George Floyd, George, George Floyd was our Emmett Till moment. He, he had his Emmett Till moment when he was actually, when that Emmett Till died, right? He was in the middle of the civil rights movement, early, early at the beginning of the civil rights movement um, when Emmett Till died. And, and that was, our, it was ours. Like everybody saw this, it was on all of our devices. We, we, were, we were sequestered in our, in our homes and, and rarely able to get out unless we were so-called essential workers. And so all of that came to the fore and everybody reacted to it and they felt like they had to do something because the house was on fire and they did. And when you have a, a, a fire, you, you want to do everything you can to prevent future ones. And what they didn't do is they put out a, they did what they thought would be putting out a fire, but they didn't build or create the conditions to prevent other fires in the future. So those that went into this with the idea that they were fire preventers, I believe, will still sustain the work. Those that went in as firefighters probably are, are going to have that dwindle because they thought they just had to put out the fire and that's all that needed to be done. Absolutely. I love that. I love that uh, metaphor too. Thank you for that. How can HR leaders evolve DEIB from a checkbox item to an environment where it's literally woven into the fabric of their culture? Yeah, you know, cultures are created from the hearts of the people. So if you really want to create DEI and make DEI accessible, actionable, and sustainable, one, accessibility means it's for everyone. And so at the beginning of your efforts, and even if you have to go back, who was involved in creating the approach to DEI? Who's involved in driving the work that we do inside of DEI? Who believes that the paradigm is for them and who be doesn't believe that? The idea is, is, is accessible to everyone, not just a few. Secondly, HR leaders need to make it actionable. And inclusion is a set of actions that create the conditions for people to thrive. That's how I define it. Now, if it's just accessible to few, or, and then if it's only actionable occasionally, it won't be built into the fabric of who the organization is. If it's actionable, and what I mean by that is unambiguously prioritized, that means that it's in action for in as a priority in the organization and it understands where that actionability and 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 um, unambiguous prioritization connects with the organizational reason for being or purpose. 
So the sustainable part of accessible, actionable, and sustainable is that it's aligned with organizational purpose. And so if we so so if you have the accessibility, everybody knows that they're all in this dance together, to use a metaphor that we've heard a lot. And they understand that we're prioritizing this because the organizational purpose requires it. They can get on board and you can make it sustained. Otherwise, it, it will be a nice thing to do for a, a while. But if you're not really going to make it accessible, actionable, and sustainable, you should probably really think deeply if you're going to enter in and call it DEI. Because if you do and people think it's inauthentic or or temporary, they'll treat it as such, just like any other thing that's not unambiguously prioritized as they get dropped pretty quickly. So that prioritization is critical for sustainability and everybody has to be part of the part of the dance. I love that. I love that being part of the dance. And it's not the last dance, people. It's not the last dance. Um, of course, you mentioned inclusion and it's bigger, I, I think, you know, than what we all make it out to be. And it's, it's so important. And one of the quotes uh, that I love from the book, you said it's really pretty simple. Inclusion comes down to choosing to take good care of one another. Treat everyone as if they belong and you will make an impact. No, I'm sorry. And you will make an important impact on your colleagues' work lives. Absolutely. It, look, a lot of the things that we see right now that we call racism are interpersonal slights. And obviously there's things that in certain systems and organizations that create inequity. And it's inequity for people of color. It's oftentimes inequity for people that just don't have the same access as somebody else. So it's not always uh, just based on how somebody looks. Sometimes the organization just might not be operating in a way and managers might not be good ones. And so the best thing you can do as a colleague is care for your colleagues. And when I say care, and this is what I talk about in the book as a as an inclusion system, it's an interdependent idea. It's like interdependency is, is the nature of humanity. We can't really exist without one another. Yeah. You know, for example, what happens if we stop having trees? We don't live. We, without plants, we don't live. And so we're in the ecosystem just like an organization is, but we oftentimes don't treat each other as things that we are dependent upon, but we are interdependent with one another. We do need each other. So the best thing to do is to care for one another. And so if you do that consistently, you'll see that that interdependence actually is of individual benefit. Some people get into, oh, people are too individualistic. I said, I'm fine if you're individualistic, as long as you understand that without caring for your colleagues, your, your individual self is not going to be as robust or as great or thrive to the extent that it can versus actually caring for your colleagues and creating those conditions for them oftentimes does the same for you. And so if we if we think in, in those terms, we can do a lot of things that create thriving for people. But we, we just have to fi- figure out what people want and need and help them get there. The, the organization benefits, the individuals benefit, hopefully, and I believe this sincerely, society benefits when we all do this consistently because you can't turn off work when you leave work. If you're caring for people at work, you can care for people uh, in your community and in your neighborhood. And when you go to the grocery store or, you know, walk your dog, whatever it is, you can care. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're all humans, so we can all care. It's just not at work. It's just not uh, our communities, the world over. Uh, and I'm going to take a take this a little bit further uh, here. I'm a big Maya Angelou fan. And one of my favorite quotes by her, she says that if, if just one percent of the world cared more, like what could we be to change so much? Oh, that's a transformational notion. Yeah. Um, it's one that I, I firmly believe in. And it's not so difficult if you're focused on each other's humanity. But oftentimes we've been focused so much on our identities mm-hmm. that we might miss something that, that keeps us from being related, from, keeps us from connecting. Inclusion at the end of, it, of, of the day, of course I have to use a, a cliche, but at the end of the day, Bianca, inclusion is a relational construct. It's all about relationships. Some people would say, you know, and several um, executives I've talked to is really business is all relationships. And, and so is life. And so if you understand that and you make inclusion about how you can be related, how you can be willing to be influenced by the so-called other, it, it just creates that space for caring in an authentic way. Um, and makes people feel like, you know, they can come to work and be who they are um, and choose how much of that they want to share. And if you do it well, they probably share more of who they are. The more they feel like they're cared for, the more they feel safe, the more they feel as if, hey, this is my company just as much it is as it is the CEO's. I can I have ownership here. I have agency here. I have to make my best contribution and I'll benefit from doing so. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you for that. And I'm, one more thing. Uh, it's all weaving together. Uh, I also know you said it's a, some people don't perceive it as a relational thing, but also, unfortunately, people who have been othered, some have been, have been historically dehumanized. So we also have to change that lens as well, that shift that mindset, that perspective, like, no, these are humans. We are all human beings. So that has to be at play as well. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. I think this is a great, great point here, uh, time here uh, for you to read your excerpt. You prepared one, correct? I did. And so I'm trying to see which one I'm going to read. I think I'm going to read one from the chapter that I wrote on intersectionality. And in the book, this chapter is called Intersectionality, the Good, Bad, Ugly, Good. And it starts with a a letter from a CEO. I have a CEO letter in each of the uh, chapters in the second half of the book. And this is the beginning. This is a chapter and a little bit um, additional information about that. We can use intersectionality as a vehicle for all to see ourselves and the complexity of our various dimensions as complement. All combinations of identity make up what we call organizational micro and macro culture. Intersectionality can serve our organization as a critical tool for reflection, enhancing our our capacity to move into, outside of, around, and through organizational contexts without getting stuck in any one or two fixed positions. We have this gift but it is important that in this case, we look a gift horse in the mouth, so to speak. That is, 
While making meaning of intersectionality, we cannot create a vacuum or a silo that prevents, or even worse, weaponizes the concept because we use it to further an exclusive agenda. Rather, we must use the idea to think about and ask the right questions of ourselves related to our agendas, meaning we have to explore and make sense with those who have tendencies to zoom in or out of places we don't zoom into and see our organization in ways we might not be able to in creating equitable outcomes for everyone. Sincerely, your CEO. I love that. I love that. Thank you for uh, reading that, Omri. I, so I have to ask, I know you had a few um, excerpts to choose from. Why did you choose that one? I think what's happening right now, and it's happening in so-called red states in America, and obviously these politicians are silly and you know they're trying to capitalize on something to get votes and to, to, to win um, favor amongst their base. And that's natural. That's the silly na- nature of politics. What's happening now is everybody is having this conversation about being woke and the word intersectionality keeps popping into it. And so I wanted to read that particular piece because I think intersectionality conceptually is not something that people can disagree with. I think they, that, excuse me, I think it's something that people generally agree with as a concept. When it is made to be something that is making somebody wrong and making somebody seem like they have a moral high ground because of this notion of intersectionality, then that's the ugly part of it. It's sometimes the bad, bad part of it. And if we use it as an understanding that humanity is the superset and our identities are the subsets, then we understand that we're all multidimensional. I'm a black man and, 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 and. And if you think about it, it's one part of who I am, but we oftentimes don't explore those other parts, we just stop at the surface. And so if we think about intersectionality as really helping us understand our similarities and differences more completely versus trying to section out some of them to make one have a, a, a way of looking at the world that's so dramatically different from another, I think we miss the opportunity. Doesn't mean that there aren't varying perspectives. It just doesn't mean that those perspectives are just because you are the identity that you look like and that most people would identify you as when they physically I, I see you. So that's I, that's why I picked that, that part. And I think I want to get a deeper into a deeper level of intersectionality and the understanding that, you know, it came from a coined term from Kimberly Crenshaw, but the reality is there were scholars that were working on intersectionality before Crenshaw came up with the term. So there's a lot of other scholarship and there's a lot of other depth that we could go into and use the concept as one that I think even the most conservative mind could get around, get their arms around if we utilized it in a way that helped them understand that, yeah, these intersections can create benefit and harm and we need to be mindful and create equitable outcomes for everyone, whether it's poor or black or gay or straight and white and male, all of them might be experiencing different forms of their identity that 
aren't just about the things that we oftentimes talk about uh, the most, the, the ones that we can see. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And it sounds like it's just being boiled down again, just to humanity. We're humans. That's it. We're all alike at the end of the day, no matter even those intersections as well. Yeah, we're alike and different. And that's what makes it great. But we spend a lot of time on our differences. What if what if we spend a little more time on things that we we are similar in. I, I'm a big Kansas City Chiefs fan. I hope I don't offend anybody. But when it was time for the playoffs, I was Kansas City Chiefs down every day. I'd be on Zoom calls, hat, shirt, sweats. I have different ones. I was changing every. It's like, yep, because I'm I'm all in. And all my Kansas City Chiefs fans that I was talking to, they were all in. Yeah. So when we got on the call, I was like, hey, you're a Chiefs fan. I didn't know that. But that was my identity at that time. That was more amplified to me than my blackness ever will be at that period, right? And I connected with people sometimes in rivalry, but we still connected as a result. Absolutely. I know we did want to talk about just tying it back to uh, that inclusion system and inclusion an inclusion system, excuse me, that you Mm -hmm. mentioned earlier. Uh, And of course, in the book, uh, you talk about five ways to ensure your colleagues feel seen, heard, and valued. The five that I have here, actively seek out new people at work, give others a chance to share ideas too, do the little things that make people feel a sense of belonging, ask people to share where they are local, and be authentic and encourage authenticity. Yeah. I think we covered quite a bit of that, not ex- not explicitly, but the opportunities to build deeper connections at work come not through your closer ties. They usually come through your weaker ties. So the people that you're really bonded with, that's fantastic. They'll they'll help you get along. They'll be people that you know you can go to. But the people that you connect with that are outside of your network, they're going to give you some insights that you just wouldn't get. So be willing to be influenced by somebody that you might call an other until that influence becomes a connection that's real and meaningful and you can learn from it and you can grow from it and you can contribute to that so-called other as well. So being actively singing people out is what I would call somebody that you're bridging with that might be across some difference that you have that there's also some similarities on the other side. Sharing ideas is constant. We, we have to do that. That's what organizations live on is, is ideas. If we don't create space for people to share ideas, particularly those people that might be more quiet or might be a, a little bit more junior, if you're a more senior person, you need to create space for that. You need to just you know know who people are as best you can and tell them the little things. You know, Ramadan's coming up. So let people know, you know, get online and find out there's all kinds of tools out there for Ramadan. If you have Muslim colleagues, be mindful of what you do during meals and ask them, hey, we're having a lunch meeting. Would you prefer that we have it earlier or later um, versus doing it over lunch, right? Asking people where they're local is really just understanding where people get their energy from, where they have rituals, where they have uh, particular dynamics where they might not be able to do everything they want to do and as well as where they relate with with different people. And then authenticity is one of those things that is, you know, encouraged and it. it's like 
you're all, it's always unfolding because you're not going to be completely authentic at first. You're going to share what you feel safe sharing. But the more you actively seek out people, give people a chance to share their ideas, do little things to make people feel a sense of belonging, asking where people are from and where they're local, that authenticity oftentimes begins to increase and people feel more open to share who they are when you do those things. So they're all kind of connected, kind of like humanity is. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And, and I love that, bringing it back to that as well. I also love, uh, you know, it as well that, you know, hey, these five things, these are only the first steps. Don't be afraid to go further to build strong, lasting relationships with those different from you. Yeah, take good take good care of each other, Bianca. It's, I mean, I sometimes think we spend so much time talking about this as DEI for people. We have this language and we use our words, and I don't even know the words. I'm, I guess, I've gotten so old and doing this for so long that I, all the new words I forget them. But the most important thing is really just being authentic, caring for each other, and, and doing that consistently. And that's where I think you have the most impact long-term as people are included. They feel like they've created this culture. It's not one that's been hoisted upon them or that they're forced to endure. What do you hope that uh, readers take away from reconstruction, reconstructing, excuse me, inclusion? One, I, I hope people take away that humanity is the superset and identity is the subset. The, the sec- that they understand that all of our identities in a multidimensional way and in a pluralistic society can create the conditions for people to thrive if that's the choice we make in prioritizing, unambiguously prioritizing inclusion. So superset, humanity, subset, identity, that's one. The second one is that inclusion is any act, anything you do, any action that can create the conditions for people to thrive and for your organization to create more value than just for itself. So if we're, if we're making inclusion a habit, we're making inclusion something that we're doing on the regular, people will thrive and that's the best outcome you can get. Because if you know what helps them thrive and you've taken interest in them, you'll see them do their best work. You'll see them, even if they leave the organization, be your best champion for the organization and other future employees. You'll see them go out and knock it out the park, I shouldn't use sports analogies so much, but go out into the world and do great work wherever they go because they got the kind of care and, and inclusion practiced for on their behalf so that they can thrive. So that's what I want people to do is know that you can make inclusion something that you do every day and your people thriving is your, your measurement uh, of, that, of that outcome. I love that. Thank you for that. And I love a good sports analogy, honestly, a good pun, period. So I'm going to keep it going. We're in the end zone here. I've got one more question for you, Omri. But before I get to that, is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, I mean, I can do a shameless self-promotion by the book, right? Reconstructing Inclusion, Making DEI Accessible, Actionable, and Sustainable. You know, we Inclusion Wins is always open to learn with people. So reach out to us for whatever you're up to, whether it's DEI strategy, whether it's um, culture development, whether it's training around certain things that we do well, because we don't do everything well. Reach out. Just, just have a conversation. I'm always open. I don't charge for that. So, you know, just holla. 
<laughs> of course. And I know the book is on Amazon. Can they get it anywhere else? Or is that Pretty much. If you go to our website, inclusionwins.com, every way you can buy it, you can find there. And uh, that there's a, there's a lot of uh, use, uh, places that you can buy it um, from our, our publisher, Ben Bella Books. Also, you can buy it on their website. So, you know, join, find, find it where it works for you. Some people, so it's in some bookstores in certain cities as well. So, um, but if, after you get it, just give us a review. That's the most important thing. I mean, reading it is important, but then giving it a, giving us a review after that. Two part of your people. <laughs> well, really three, go get it, read it, and then leave a review. Absolutely. Easy, easy peasy. Okay. I'll read my final question for you. What does your next chapter look like? Ah, man. You know, I'm, I'm starting to do a little more speaking than I used to do, but I'm also ready to, um, I'm actually starting the outline for a next book. So I can't really say exactly what it's going to be yet, but I have some of the foundation and hopefully it will be done in 25-ish and uh, continuing to build out the work that we're doing with organizations, really doing large scale, large, really deeply um, participative change work. So we're inviting lots of people, excuse me, into the organization to, to make this happen. And so we see huge changes from that. And we're really excited about this approach and doing it in a way that the stories that are told and the transformation that happens uh, comes through and from the hearts of the people because they were the ones that created the conditions for it to happen. So that's that's the work, another book, and continuing to do uh, change work across uh, organizations with as many people in the organization engaged as possible. I love that. I love that. Thank you for sharing that, Omri. It's been truly a delight chatting with you. Thank you for being here. Bianca, it was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. Of course, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Remember, you can always follow us on Twitter at HR Pages, and we are also now available on iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Audible. Again, I'm Bianca Heron. Join us next time when we turn the page.